61 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I guess we could call these the holiday editions of Inside EMS as we get ready for Thanksgiving here in another couple weeks. And uh, here we go in another great show, the uh, podcast that's always imitated but never duplicated inside EMS. And with me always is the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. How are you, brother? I'm doing good, man. You ready for uh, Thanksgiving? You got to do some work? What's the deal going on there in uh, Louisiana? I am. Uh, I'm doing my typical uh, pre-Thanksgiving routine, which include, which uh, consists of the Texas EMS Conference. So I am... Uh, packing up as we speak and i'll i'll be heading out to uh fort worth texas uh, friday and and doing a day of duck hunting before we go on to the conference and then i'll i'll be at the conference until wednesday and unfortunately i work thanksgiving uh, wednesday and thanksgiving day so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to rely on my significant other to uh to come up with some kind of something tasty for thanksgiving and we'll just eat while i'm off shift that sounds very nice you guys going down there to texas texas ems of course is one of the biggest state conferences in the united states and uh having been in texas for a lot of years uh uh, saying that it's a, a really great opportunity for some awesome education so it's awesome that you're going to be there uh are you one of those fried turkey kind of guys by the way mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, I like fried turkey. I'm not going to fry one myself, and if I do so, I'm going to do it outside with a, a thawed turkey instead of, uh, all the, the how not to, or how to burn your house down videos on, uh, on, uh, uh on YouTube, and my girlfriend is here right now giving me a, a, a yuck face and thumbs down. Apparently, she does not like fried turkey. She's a purist. A so, purist in um, the sense. I guess, I guess for Thanksgiving, I'm going to... Yeah, she's not going to be frying any turkey, so I, I guess we're we're having the traditional uh, roasted turkey from the straight from the oven on Thanksgiving. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, when I was in Texas, that's a big thing is fried turkey, and and you take a twenty five pound, twenty six pound turkey, and you could fry that thing in like forty minutes, and it's it's not pretty good. I'm yeah. going to try smoking a turkey this year, but uh, I don't know where I'm going to get the papers to roll that thing because it is pretty big. But anyway. <laughs> You should try. You should try turkey, uh, uh, paper bag turkey. Yeah, what is uh, that? There's a recipe that Kid Craddock in the morning used to uh, used to have on his website. Uh, I'm hoping it's still there uh, now that Kid has died. But uh, it's a uh, you roast your turkey in a paper bag in the oven. You you do it at fairly uh, fairly low heat, and he says it it uh, and you just basically coat the turkey in oil and slip the. Uh, the roasting pan and everything inside a, a heavyweight paper bag and stick it in your oven just as long as the bag is as the temperature is set right and the bag's not in contact with the heating element you're you're not risking a fire that's and interesting it supposedly seals the juices in the turkey and makes makes a very juicy turkey that is that is never dry so I'm, I, I would like to try that sometime yeah very interesting very interesting but let's go ahead and uh, let's do what the people came here for they're not really interested in our in our cooking habits, I'm sure. But let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the news. And I know you got our first story for us. 
Yeah, I got a story from November the fourteenth out of uh, out of San Antonio Fire Department, uh, uh, where uh, three paramedics, three San Antonio Fire Department paramedics, were suspended after an internal investigation revealed a powerful sedative was misused on patients in three separate incidents, according to the uh, the uh, KENS five uh, news report uh, out of San Antonio. And the uh, what happened here is is uh, one medic. Uh, on three separate occasions that they can find, administered uh, Versed inappropriately to uh, to three different patients, two of which uh, subsequently died, but uh, probably not due to what he did. And as a result, the chief uh, the chief suspended him for 30 days and decertified him as a paramedic and, and put him on the uh, truck as an EMT. And two other medics who uh, either didn't protest or, or went along in some way were, were uh, suspended for a, a period of time as well. But the, the thing I was <clears throat> that, that strikes me in this report is there's something that author uh, Michael Crichton uh, refers to as the Gell-Mann amnesia factor. Are you familiar with, uh, with what he's talking about? I am not. I'd, I'd love a little lesson on that. Basically what it is, he says, you know, you, you read these stories, you read a story in the newspaper and on something that you are well versed in, you're an expert about. And when you read these stories, you realize that not only does the, the journalist get it totally wrong, but often he gets it so wrong that he mixes up cause and effect. Uh, he refers to them as wet streets cause rain stories. But you, you chuckle and you shake your head at these kind of stories and then you flip the page and read another story and you you totally forget the fact that um, that the journalist in the previous story totally had the the story wrong all the facts were uh, were misinterpreted and then you read the rest of the newspaper as if the uh, the journalist writing those stories actually knew what the hell they were talking about and that's the gale man amnesia effect uh, you know uh, that um, when we we turn to things like uh, that we we're not well versed in like uh, economics and, and foreign policy and, and government relations and those sort of things um, we we read these these news stories as gospel uh, and it's entirely possible that those uh, those journalists also had uh, just as terminal a case of cranial rectal inversion as the one that wrote the story that you were well versed in that's right um, and this is a perfect example this is a perfect example of it. This guy, this uh, this journalist wrote this story, and, and, and it's full of factual inaccuracies. First of all, he engages in a little bit of yellow journalism here. He says, uh, in all three cases, a paramedic administered Versed, a brand of the drug midazolam, without calling the on-call medical director. Two patients, both of whom already had serious health problems, two days after receiving the drug. Now, layperson reads that or someone who doesn't who's unfamiliar with with medical care or the the actions of the versed would think that versed in some way contributed to these people's death and that versed in some way or versed should not be administered to people with with uh, who already have serious health problems you know it's a he goes on to say the the Bear County Medical Examiner did not perform autopsies on either of the two people who died, and there was no finding Versed contributed to their deaths, which, you know, is uh, a bit of weasel wording. He, he plants the, the idea that the Versed that administered caused these people's deaths or contributed to it in some way. I, you know, and, and those of us who, who know something about medical care and pharmacology, you know, would naturally find it hard to believe that a, a drug with a half-life measured minutes can cause someone's death uh, two days later. He also talks about the 
uh, said being or uh, sedatives being used in lethal injections and, and all this kind of stuff, and, and it's absolutely ridiculous. I mined a few contacts and and found the real story behind this. He also uh, the journalist also says in here that uh, that uh, San Antonio Fire Department medics must call for orders direct medical control orders for any time they want to administer a narcotic or a benzodiazepine. Right. And that's where I kind of jumped into the story was to saying if, if they're guilty of anything, they may be guilty of not following protocol. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, as it turns out, San, uh, I don't know where he got his information uh, or, or if he just pulled it out of the air or if he totally misinterpreted it. But uh, San Antonio's fire protocols has standing orders for, you know, seizures for or uh, uh, Versed for seizures and, and sedation and that sort of thing, and, and uh, the same as, as for analgesics and, and uh, all the other controlled substances they administer. But what happened in these three cases is this particular paramedic used Versed outside of protocol for medication-assisted intubation. He was using Versed, and in the case of medication-assisted intubation, um, they are required to call for medical control orders first, uh, and he um, uh, he ignored that and, and did it on his own, and, and pretty much uh, said he'd he'd do it again if he uh, if uh, the situation warranted, um, and uh, that's why he got his uh, PP slapped and and got demoted down to EMT, not because he uh, used first aid without orders, but he, he blatantly ignored protocol and then uh, was unrepentant about it. So right. I, I can kind of see the, the reason for the chief demoting him and, and punishing him as harshly as he did. So good on the chief. I, I do think he could have been less equivocal about uh, in the interview about whether Versed contributed to these people's deaths. Is now the responsibility of the leadership that we should correct the story that's in the paper to say, hey, wait a minute now. I mean, because now you've got people thinking about, and you've got attorneys who are looking at this to say, oh, my God, these guys gave a drug, and they could have killed these people two days later. Do we have an obligation now to go back to newspaper reporters and say, hey, wait a minute, you got this story all wrong, and we want you to print a retraction? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I, I think the chief, you know, um, I, I think the chief mishandled the, the news report. Well, and, and, you know, he let he who is without sin cast the first stone. A lot of us have done that uh, over the years. Uh, I think he missed the opportunity to point out uh, to the public that, A, uh, the medic who, who uh, was uh, guilty of misconduct has been appropriately punished, but B, uh, drive home the fact that their protocols and their safeguards uh, and the medications they use are safe, uh, and that's what he—that's what he missed the chance to do. He could have, rather than say, "Well, I'm not a doctor; I don't know if Versed contributed to their death." He could have simply said, uh, "Well, the the drug administered has a very short uh, duration of effects, and it's highly unlikely that uh, this drug could cause a person's death two days later." Um, and that's all that needed to be said. Um, you know, I wish he had said that, but uh, hindsight being twenty twenty. But, uh, you know, it sounds like that, uh, you know, it's an issue that, you know, we hear all the time, you know, and sometimes the news just gets it wrong. And you and I have been around EMS for a long time to know about how they sensationalize uh, some of those stories. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, this came up because it's something that we all may, might face uh, in the future. But I'm going to give you my story, Kelly. And this one really kind of, uh, you know, kind of bugged me when I read it was uh, uh, 
there was an arrest in California of a woman. The police mistook her seizure for intoxication, and they arrested her. So this goes to Pismo uh-huh. Beach, California, and we all know about Pismo Beach from the Bugs Bunny cartoons. He was always trying to get to Pismo Beach, wasn't he? And uh, But here's a woman that claims that... A, or the Coachella Valley Carrot Festival. That's right. You're absolutely right. So there is. Uh, uh, so the woman claims that there was excessive force by Pismo Beach uh, Police Department, and it's gone viral since she, uh, since uh, you know the case happened. And uh, a lady's 32 years old. She called 911 for medical assistance in October. Uh, she had suffered uh, suffered several seizures, uh, and only to be arrested for public intoxication. And I think that this this really kind of opens the eyes of EMS providers as well as law enforcement because there are a lot of times when we don't consider uh, metabolic challenges when we deal with these patients. Now, let's not just talk about seizure patients, but let's go ahead and talk about, um, you know, hypoglycemia. And a lot of times when we hear this, uh, these calls go out for mental illness or when we hear these calls go out for, you know, whatever, they're not acting right, a lot of times we get tunnel vision and we don't think about those metabolic disturbances that are going on inside people. I mean, how many times have we seen those frequent flyers that you and I pick up and we know their voices and we know their addresses, you know, as soon as we hear them? And when we see them, we're like, go ahead and get in the ambulance. We'll take you to the hospital. And we miss the fact that this guy now has a blood sugar of 700, and he winds up that he's in a, in a coma because we're not doing our due diligence to say, is there something else going on? And now you've got a patient in, in California that had a seizure. They arrested her for intoxication. But I think this is a failure on first responders parts that we get tunnel vision and we really don't get a little bit more into the investigative process to say what else could be going on here yeah we you know we there, there's a reason we have a a, a big uh, mnemonic for those types of situations and and all too often we don't go through the the entire aeiou tips uh looking for our differentials we just focus on the eye for intoxication and, and and it's sad but true and and i'd like to say that i've never been guilty of that but i have been guilty of tunnel vision and i have been guilty of judging uh, a frequent flyer excuse me not frequent flyer valued repeat customer uh by the, that standard the ems know. loyalty members that's right ems loyalty members you, you we punch your card every time we transport them pretty soon they uh they get a free ride I they're, get, a they're getting those anyway a, uh, yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's it costs money only if you actually intend to pay the bill. I went to uh, or I had a, a patient who who I transported quite frequently who who had a, a drug and alcohol problem and 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 uh, was frequently getting into to fights and whatnot. And uh, the last time I transported him, he uh, he had been beaten uh, or he had fallen, uh, according to his buddies and was quite obviously intoxicated and and i took him to the hospital i wasn't so foolish as to allow him to refuse care uh so the 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 care i rendered to him was ultimately the right thing to do um but for all the wrong reasons i chalked him up to being intoxicated and as it turned out he'd been beaten so severely he had a a basal or skull fracture so uh um you know i'm there but for the grace of God go I. The thing we have to keep in mind here is, uh, as my, my friend Gary Saffer says, uh, when you have a patient with an altered mental status, they may be drunk, uh, they may have a head injury, uh, they may be hypoglycemic, or they may quite simply be a jerk. Uh, and it's all possible. Uh, 
it's, it's all too possible that they're all four things at once. So you, you have to assess your patients and don't get that tunnel vision you spoke. Let's go ahead and go to the next story. What do you got for us? I've got a I've got a feel good story for you here, man. This I is, could uh, use a feel good. Make me make me feel good, right? Kelly Grayson. <laughs> uh, well, from a distance. <laughs> what are we gonna bust in the song now? Who are you, uh, Bette Midler? Story, that's right. This story comes out of San Angelo, Texas. Mason County EMS uh, responded to a call of a uh, a uh, rancher that um, uh, felt dizzy. Uh, and requested an ambulance. Uh, uh, Mr. J.R. Nicholson was transported by, by the ambulance, and about 20 miles into the transport, a motorist flagged down the, uh, the ambulance and told them that there was a dog on the running board of their vehicle. Uh, apparently, their, uh, his 35-pound uh, his beagle mix, Buddy, uh, wouldn't leave his master's side, and, and as they pulled off, he jumped up on the running board of the ambulance, and they sped away with him. And, and uh, when they were flagged down, they, you know, what could they do? They, uh, they hopped out and they let the dog in the, uh, in the back of the truck uh, and, and let it stay with his, uh, with his master, which I think is, is good on the EMTs for allowing such a thing. I don't think that there's any, uh, you know, that we, we all have this, this uh, over, uh, this attitude uh, where we're a little little too stringent on, on things like regulations and stuff, like, as if we're going to have our license yanked if we allow a non-service dog to accompany a patient sometimes. Um, and good on the EMTs for allowing it. I mean, I mean, they were 20 miles from the man's house. They couldn't very well leave the dog on the side of the road. Uh, but uh, that was a, a pretty, pretty good ending to the story and pretty uh, humane um, and compassionate care on the part of the EMTs to allow the dog in the truck and let him stay with his master. Good on him. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, when I saw that story, I was like, how the heck did that happen? But, I mean, that that could have really turned out bad for, the, for that dog if, you know, being on that step, yeah. um, you know, he could have fallen off, he could have gotten hurt, he could have gotten run over. But, you know, I'm like you. I mean, in that situation, I think I would have done this, you know, the very same thing and let that dog in. Now, when you get to the hospital, uh, you need to make sure, what was that from Men in Black, remember? The cat's another problem. What's the problem? It's now your problem. I mean, what do you, yeah. do, with, what do, you do with the dog once you get to that that's hospital? Right. But, um, you know, it's still the thought of saying that, uh, you know, sometimes we got to do the right thing. And, and sometimes the right thing means uh, we're, we're uh, fracturing a couple of those policies. And, uh, you know, but it, it is a feel-good story. And I do think that, uh, you know, there's something good that comes out of this. And, you know, it does make us look good. And all these other stories that we see where there's so many, uh, you know, bad things that are going on and so many crazy decisions that are happening in uh you know our career field it's good to hear a couple of these good ones every now and again you know i I think we i think we spend entirely too much time worrying about what what some agency or supervisor or or faceless bureaucrat can do to us if we deviate uh from total lockstep with our protocols uh and and i i don't think the i think that the the best avenue to avoiding those situations is just be kind to people uh, and practice good care, and the rest will usually take care of itself. I doubt that uh, Mason County uh, allows animals in the back of the rig, but what are you going to do? You know, they did the right thing for the for this patient and and for his dog, and uh, um, uh, good good results happened from it. Right. So let's go ahead and transition now. We'll go to our clinical issue, and you know, you and I we tried very very hard uh, mm-hmm. last week to. Uh, 
come to us live from EMS Expo, and uh, we did conduct a show, and because we had some challenges, I think, with our Wi-Fi connection, there was no way that we can salvage all the feedback, and, and you know, it was very, very difficult for us to, uh, you know, get a show put, a, put out, and uh, so we're really kind of disappointed that we uh, let our fans down, that we weren't able to uh, chat with them from EMS Expo, but, uh, but I think that there were a couple things that you and I talked about that we should really kind of touch on. Because, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, you and I have been a very big fan of, uh, you know, in the cheering section for the Code Green campaign. And we had uh, someone from the Code Green campaign come over and tell us that uh, so far to date, uh, there have been 58, you know, deaths uh, to our EMS uh, fire uh, brethren. And not necessarily that 58. Uh, has increased, but we are doing a better job maybe of keeping those uh, those folks in line of, of knowing that they're happening. We're doing better record keeping, so to speak. And but you know, I just want to kind of touch on that because I know that you're you know you're you're an advocate for Code Green campaign. Uh, you're the one that brought it to my attention to say we need to start doing stuff about this. But when you hear that number, it, it really kind of goes to to your soul to say what are we not doing for our for our our peers, what are we not doing for the folks in our career field that we're losing these folks uh, in the long run? You know, and that's, we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough as, as agencies. We're not doing enough as peers. We're not doing enough ourselves uh, in, in confronting the problem. And, and that's our, that's our belief with the code green campaign. We want to destigmatize mental illness, depression, PTSD among EMS providers uh, so that people will, will rather than, than do themselves harm, uh, will realize that, that seeking help and reaching out is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Um, this is how we keep going in a very stressful career field, uh, is, is recognizing that we can't man, uh, manage it all by ourselves sometimes. You know, and, and the record keeping is problematic. That's, it's a uh, suicide uh, among EMS and fire and police providers is a very underreported statistic. We have no idea what the numbers are like because up until just recently, very few uh, agencies and very few uh, public health reporting agencies track those numbers. Um, I discovered this trying to, to come up with data for uh, a presentation I was doing in Tennessee last week, and I just couldn't find any hard numbers. But a couple of them, uh, a couple of studies stood out for me particularly. In North Carolina, there was a study that, that showed that firefighters are three times as likely to die by their own hands as they are from a line of duty death. Police officers nationwide are more likely to die at their own hands than at the hands of an armed felon. Uh, and those are pretty pretty significant numbers. Those are just crazy numbers that when you yeah. say it, you sit here and you shake your head because it's, it's unbelievable to hear what you're saying. Yeah, and you throw in the reintegration of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan into the workforce, and a lot of these guys go into EMS and public safety and uh, uh, with PTSD and, and depression from, from their wartime experiences. And, and they bring that to EMS and, and, and they're, you know, we come from a fairly macho culture. And when you're a soldier or a serviceman, you, it, it's even more so. Reaching out is a sign of weakness in that culture. And, and we need to stop that because we had, <clears throat> back in 2003, I believe there were, uh, well, I don't want to quote a date, but uh, one of the numbers that stood out to me that there were 18 veteran suicides a day 
at one point in the last last 10 years or so. Um, 18 of our vets were surviving combat, coming home to their homeland, and then taking their lives because they, they could not deal with the trauma that combat had, had visited upon them. Um, now that number is, is down to you know one vet about every 18 hours commit suicide, but still, um, the numbers are way too high. We've got to do something about it. And, and, uh, destigmatization of the, uh, uh, of the illness is the first step in my, in my view. Yeah. You know, but I still think that there has to be more done, you know, whether it's at the local level, whether it's at the regional level, at the state level, you know, we look at this and we, you know, we look at it as, oh, the, you know, this happened in that system. But I think we need to have responsibilities in, in our own organizations to say, how are we dealing with stress? When we see these, you know, and I've been doing this for a long time, and I've been one of the guys earlier in my career to say, I don't know why it's affecting them this way. This this wasn't that bad of a call. But but who who am I to pass that judgment, yeah. you know? And, and now you start to see a lot and, of the and younger... Who knows if it, and who knows if it was that call that's affecting... Right. And you said it yourself on a, on a program that there were other things that were going on in your life that uh you know contributed to the fact that uh you know now you were feeling a little bit depressed and, and we just automatically assume this could have been the you know the straw that broke the camel's back that is really kind of pushing you over the edge you know we do a good job of internalizing all the things that we see and all the things that we do in our career field but it, it could be just that one call that that doesn't have a lot of meaning to us that is the tipping point and, and again i don't think we do enough on the local level to keep these people uh you know from hurting themselves no we don't you know after my after my talk in tennessee uh, attendee came up to me and and told me his story and this is a 20-year emt a 25-year cop this is you know this is a, a grown man who is has uh, uh flourished in a very stressful profession for uh two stressful professions for 20 plus years he told me the story of uh, a little girl he was you know this 10 years before he is still racked with guilt from it for from the the little girl that he could not save couldn't save and not only couldn't he save her but uh he blames himself for uh uh for what he viewed as mistakes that allowed her murderer uh to go free and, and he broke down in tears telling me about this 10 years after the fact and it still affects him deeply enough that that he he couldn't keep it together and and he he stood there in, in the exhibit hall and cried in public and i gotta tell you man I, uh, he was uh he was just uh just a a couple of seconds away from having two grown men cry in public because i don't like to see anyone in that kind of pain much less one of my fellow emts and his story was a litany of, of everything that is wrong with how we deal with mental illness and, and stress and, and depression and ptsd among uh, ems providers his eap uh, you know, first of all, his agency mandated CISM counseling after uh, after certain events. And as he put it, he said, I worked with these guys. You can make me attend, but you can't make me say a word when I'm there. I have to work with these people. So, you know, the peer the, the peer pressure and the, the stigma of, of, uh, of speaking out and, and admitting that something bothers you was already at work. Uh, and then when he went, uh, he sought uh, uh, help from his uh, agency's employee act, uh, assistance program, it capped out at five visits. They would only allow him five visits, and after five visits, if his issues weren't resolved, uh, he had to go seek a, a psychiatrist. Um, uh, and he said neither the psychiatrist nor the people with the EAP understood uh, 
the the things that he was going through they they had never experienced that sort uh, of themselves and their uh, their their help was was limited because they just didn't get it right. uh and then for for further mental health uh this poor guy had to go to a, a psychiatrist and and was going to wind up having to spend 2500 bucks out of pocket before before his insurance kicked in to, to cover any of it right um so the agency let him down there as well, and, and agencies need to do a better job uh, at protecting the the uh, their most valuable resource, and that's their people. You know, and I agree with you. But where is where does it fall into the fact, Kelly, of initial training? Do we need to start teaching better mental health training in paramedic and EMT schools? So not only can we recognize this within our patients, but now start to recognize them with our peers. You know, we start to we talk about this community paramedicine thing that you and I go back and forth on uh, almost uh, every show. But now, as we start to think about us going out into the community and dealing with mental health patients on a different level, aren't we kind of dropping the ball and in, in, in not addressing this in initial training? Yes. Yes, I think we are, you know, and, and I think the the data is out there. The materials are already out there. The problem is we do such a poor job at teaching. When, you, you know, you've all been in that, you've, you've all seen that lecture or attended that lecture, the health and well-being of the EMT. It's in the preparatory section of your EMT textbook, and that's the, the, the section the chapters in the textbook that we just breeze through real quick because we want to get to the good stuff and we can talk all day about uh stress relief and 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 living a healthy life outside of ems and and recognizing stress and so on and so forth but they're just words on a page unless we practice them and and when i teach these things uh you can see these guys who have never never been in ems and have no idea what that what it can do to you after a while it's obvious that they're not paying attention and they're just trying to get through the lecture they want to know what's going to be on the test so i i usually don't even teach that chapter anymore what i do is i put up a single slide of uh black text on a white background that says yes one day you will hate your job here's how you get past it and learn to forgive it um and we talk about all the things that that wreck you in in ems and and how to overcome those things when they inevitably happen and, and from a practical perspective uh, from someone who has been there and done that and, and been through burnout and been through depression uh, and and you know showing that uh, you're not the only one out there and, and don't think you're superhuman because it, it may eventually affect you one day as well right well Kelly it sounds like we have a clinical issue we do we do we need to get better at uh, taking we need to get better at taking care of ourselves and we need to get better at taking care of our brothers because sometimes uh, each other is all we've got so keep that in mind and uh, um, look out for your partners and, and friends and, and uh, you know, the, it, it takes more than just having their backs on the street. You've got to have their backs at home. I agree with you 100%. Well, uh, as far as the show goes, I, I think we had a, a really good message, and I think that, uh, you know, it's something that everybody needs to consider, and our job is to take care of people, and that includes the people that sit in the truck with us, that includes the people that work in our department, that includes the people that uh, we come in contact with almost on a daily basis that uh, may not be having the best day, and, and it's our responsibility, I think, to help them. Uh, our job is care, and uh, we need to care for all those people. So, Kelly, why don't you go ahead and give everybody the, the uh, email address let's go ahead and get out of here we'll end another show and uh, we'll get ready for uh thanksgiving week all right guys as always thanks for tuning in to inside ems and we're interested in hearing your comments suggestions uh questions so email us at the show at ems1.com and we'll catch you next week